Hi, welcome to More Life, the Reentry Podcast, a podcast about offender reentry, advocacy, and reform. I'm your host, Vankedia Garner. Thank you for joining me today. So on today's episode, we're going to be talking about social support um, and how that relates to reentry. Um, we're really going to be trying to conceptualize social support, understand why it's important, and like what we can do better to support these individuals. Um, when they are being released. So with me today to talk about this subject is Dr. Caitlin Taylor. Um, Dr. Taylor is an associate professor in the Department of Sociology and Criminal Justice at LaSalle University in Philadelphia. A lot of her research centers on the collateral consequences of mass incarceration, as well as challenges faced by returning citizens. Dr. Taylor has done a lot of work, um, had a lot of her research published in the Prison Journal, um, the Justice Evaluation Journal, Violence and Victims, and Criminal Justice Policy Review, and a plethora of other journals. But not only has she done research in these areas or published in these um, journals, but she's also conducted program evaluations with several other justice agencies. And this includes the Philadelphia court system, um, as well as the U.S. probation for the Eastern District of Pennsylvania. So she has a lot of experience in this area. And at LaSalle specifically, she enjoys teaching courses on restorative justice, mass incarceration, institutional and community corrections, and a list of other courses. She's also involved in the Inside Out Prison Exchange Program. So I think that given all that I just stated about her, she she is very qualified to talk about this subject with us today. So without further ado, I'll have her take the floor and um, say anything that she feels like she wants to say. Well, first, thank you so much for having me. Um, I'm a big fan of what you've been doing with this podcast, Van Kiwi, and I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. Oh, I thank you. I appreciate that. Um, so, yeah, we'll, you know, we'll jump right in as we always do. Um, and like I said, we're going to be talking about social support and kind of what that even means. So I think that's like the first place to start is really talking about what is social support? It's in the context of offender reentry. Yeah, so at the most basic level, I really like to think of social support just as how do people get the help that they need? Um, and in terms of defining it in a more detailed way, the influential criminologist Frank Collin did some really key work in this area in the, in the 1990s on outlining for us what are the various dimensions or characteristics of social support. Um, and the first one is really about the objective delivery of support versus perceptions of, of support, right? So is there a difference between how people um, objectively receive support versus what they perceive to have received? And there might be a difference between those two things. The second is this difference between what's often referred to as instrumental social support versus expressive or emotional social support. And so instrumental social support is really about meeting some end goal, right? Is it helping somebody receive financial stability or um, find housing versus expressive or emotional social support is really about meeting somebody's emotional needs. The third dimension, then, is really about different levels of aggregation. So we can think about at the micro level, people can receive social support from one another, right? One individual supports another individual. But we can also conceptualize social support at the macro level, right? People can receive support from their community, from their social networks, from institutions. Um, so these different levels of aggregation are another dimension. And then fourth, the final dimension is really about the source of social support. Is it coming from a formal agency like a probation office or an educational institution versus a more informal source? Is support coming from a family member, a loved one, a peer? Um, and so I think those are helpful in outlining all of the different ways that we can conceptualize social support. Right. And that that makes a lot of sense. And like I've heard about I don't think I've ever heard about them in like dimensions or maybe even thought about that, but that makes a lot of sense when you're looking at kind of micro and macro levels of social support. So I guess I'm just wondering in like in your um, own experience of doing work, are any one of these dimensions more important than the other one? Or like, what is the, what does the literature say about each of these dimensions? Yeah, 
Yeah, great question. So I think I maybe it would be most helpful to go through kind of chronologically what our field has learned about social support in the area of, of reentry. And some of the most important earlier work on social support and reentry came first out of the Urban Institute's returning home studies in the early 2000s. And so they did these studies in which they tracked people uh, following their release from prison in four different large cities in the U.S., these studies found that people who were incarcerated before their release had fairly high expectations for the levels of support that families in particular would, uh, would provide them post-release. And then that once released, people also reported fairly high levels of actually receiving family support. So a lot of this was, if we're thinking back to the dimensions, this is a micro level conception of support. Um, then through the 2000s, there were a few small scale studies that tried to assess specifically thinking about family support is by far the most uh, studied aspect of this in, in reentry. Um, there were a few small scale studies that tried to assess the effects of family support on recidivism, um, including some within the with the returning home site. So if your question is like, which of these are our most important? It of course depends on how we define quote unquote important, right? Um, and so what people define as important within our field, for better or worse, is oftentimes recidivism, right? Does this reduce somebody's likelihood of, of reoffending? Um, I would argue, of course, though, that there's lots of other important outcomes related to social support, like does this help somebody's sense of health and well-being post-release or their quality of life? Um, but those types of outcomes are definitely less studied than recidivism. So that's kind of like a caveat, I guess, before I just focus on the on the recidivism piece. Um, but my dissertation work 10 years ago, more than that now, um, uh, was really the first large scale attempt to measure the nature of the relationship, looking at some of these dimensions, um, the nature of the relationship between family support and recidivism. So I used a large data set um, that was called the Serious and Violent Offender Reentry Initiative or SFORI data set that had data on nearly 2,000 male and female reentrants. Um, they were interviewed 30 days prior to their release, as well as then three, nine, and 15 months after their release. So we had multiple waves of data for both males and females. Um, and while there were some differences across those four time periods and for self-reported measures of reoffending versus official arrest records, the general finding um, from my research showed that after controlling for other known predictors of, of reoffending, emotional support, that expressive support, reduced recidivism, but instrumental support did not. And that was really the opposite of what I hypothesized, right? Like I thought, um, you know, hugs are great, but they don't pay the bills. I have to give credit to my dissertation chair, Kate Aron, who kind of summarized my hypothesis in that in that helpful way. Um, but it really turned out to be the opposite. It's that the emotional support really is what matters way more than instrumental support. Um, and in some circumstances, for some types of crimes, um, we also I actually found that instrumental support, higher levels of instrumental support increased the likelihood of reoffending. So if we think about this, if instrumental support is all of these like helping to meet financial needs and find housing, maybe there's some type of an, an enabling effect here, right? That when people know they can constantly rely on their family members, um, they might take advantage of that, right? That is, I think, an area that, that needs further ex exploration. Um, but the in thinking about Collins dimensions, that uh, at least in the area of family support, we definitely have evidence that that emotional support piece um, really matters. Um, there's a couple of other theories too on, on uh, how social support can matter or who it matters most for. So in the psychological literature, actually, they've termed what are called the main effects model versus the buffering model. And so the main effects model argues that everyone can benefit from social support. So social support helps various outcomes regardless of the person. The buffering model, though, argues that those who are at high risk for some negative outcome need social support the most. So social support matters the most for someone who is at some high risk, elevated risk for a negative outcome. In other words, support 
buffers or moderates the relationship between some risk factor and a negative outcome. Um, and so I tried to look at some of this with the SPORI data set in my dissertation as well um, by examining whether people with higher rates of recent victimization experiences benefited more from family support. So this is testing the buffering model, right? If we believe the buffering model, we would think that those who receive social support um, after having been victimized are gonna benefit from family support more. Um, and so did, did family support moderate the negative effects of victimization on recidivism? And the answer was no. Um, regardless of levels of family support, higher levels of recent victimization were consistently associated with higher levels of recidivism. Oh, wow. And that's, that's not something I would have even expected either though. Um, oh, wow. Okay. So it seems like, you know, from all of that, of what you're saying, um, there are a lot of different theories related to social support and granted, I, I never assumed this either, that there was one thing that's more important than the other one. Um, and it doesn't seem like we have come to a consensus either of just like, uh, ways over like a, I guess like a, a proper way to do I don't want to say proper let me not say that um but a way to kind of combine all these different things because you talked about well-being you talk even health um even just like instrumental and emotional to put all these things together in a way to support these individuals is that is that is that what it sounds like does that make sense yeah absolutely and I think that this is I would say in the program evaluation literature, there's this real emphasis on studying just recidivism, right? And studying just the effects on new crimes. But I think we're really missing a larger piece of the puzzle here, especially if we're thinking about um, what do we want social support do, to accomplish, right? And as, as a mom of two young kids, I kind of take this back to almost like a, a mothering perspective. Like, why do I provide my kids support? So they become these perfect little robots who do good in school and get a good job and go on to make lots of money. To me, that's kind of equivalent to the recidivism piece versus do I provide social support because I want them to be healthy and well-rounded, happy people, right? That's these other outcomes related to reentry um, that we don't study as, as, as much, right? And there's, of course, lots of funding related reasons for that. You know, it's a much harder case to make in a grant application. I want to study, does providing social support make people coming out of prison happier or more well-rounded citizens versus does it create public safety by reducing crime. Um, I think they're, of course, not mutually exclusive things um, that uh, in terms of those different outcomes, but I think that that's definitely a, a gap in the literature that's important and perhaps says something about how much, to what extent we value the lived experiences of people coming out of prison if we are not so focused on health, well-being, happiness, quality of life, et cetera. Right. Yeah. That makes, makes a lot of sense. And I, that's what I was thinking too. Like um, I had a prior episode just talking about, you know, a little bit about recidivism and that's kind of what it is when you were doing that explanation, that distinction between, um, you know, what are we just doing this just because we want them to be compliant and we want them to be, you know, not commit another crime or are we doing this because we actually want to invest in them um, and for them to be productive citizens. I mean, I want, I also, I think another thing that you mentioned as far as of why it's so difficult to like, to, to get to those things of like happiness is also just how do you even measure that? Like, uh, you know, just finding proper tools to even kind of, measure happiness or to measure um quality of life because like you even made that distinction er earlier it seems like it's hard to even measure social support sometimes because you have received social support and you have perceived and I'm like in my mind I'm thinking that sounds like social support I don't think about it in that way of like oh in those two different categories. I'm thinking, oh, just social support, but perception of the social support actually matters too. And I don't think I've ever just like really thought about that. 
Yeah, and this is another area of, of research we can really grow in, right, about identifying what are the gaps between support that people actually receive and whether or not they think they're actually being supported, right, um, and mm -hmm. perceptions matter. I would point to, to something that you said in the beginning of that uh, question or comment made me think also of um, Bruce Western's book that came out a couple of years ago, Homeward, that tracked people coming out of prison in Boston and was by far uh, the most comprehensive examination of people's lives. They did in-depth life histories with a number of people and a really remarkable um, effort to, to reduce respondent attrition. And for this kind of population that is a very, you know, quote unquote, difficult to study, difficult to reach population, I think that's probably the best reentry study I've seen um, in terms of minimizing, minimizing attrition. But this really speaks to the need for doing in-depth qualitative research in this area too, that it might not be as simple to just say, okay, we're going to develop a 10-point scale to measure social support because there's all of these, these different dimensions and the how much perception of social support matters, right? Is it really about um, how loving somebody uh, is to somebody coming out of prison or is it what that individual perceives they're experiencing, right? I think there's a lot of reason to believe that the perceptions matter more than the reality. Um, and so all of that really, really requires qualitative research, which is, of course, more expensive, more time consuming, less held to the, you know, uh, level of prestige in our field as these large quantitative data mining um, type studies. Yes. And I think like one of the things I think that makes sense, too, of just like based off your dissertation, if you're seeing that emotional support is uh, the thing that people are saying um, is more, I don't want to say more beneficial, but has been more significant to them rather than instrumental support. I could see, I can only assume that perception of support would be higher as well. So I, I'm, that absolutely. makes sense, right? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, that's what I'm thinking. And I'm like, okay, that is an area where we really could do some more work and try to implement that I don't know. And I'm, that's what I'm saying. I don't know how they do that. Like, how do they implement those, like these type of things of emotional support into these programs? Um, do you know anything about that? Yeah. So maybe it would be helpful for me to talk through a couple of examples, not just for um, family support, but also for like peer or community level mm -hmm. um, type support on both a, both a programmatic level, as well as kind of a more in informal level. And thinking first about the peer support piece, there's of course a really large literature, especially for juveniles on the effects of peer influence, but there's somewhat less known about the effects of peer support, right? Which is of course a really, uh, perhaps two sides of the same coin. Um, similar to what I did for my dissertation on family support using the SFORI data set, the SFORI data set also had items asking about perceptions of peer support. Um, so in collaboration with a former undergraduate student of mine um, and now assistant professor at TCNJ, Tricia Becker, um, we looked at the effects of peer support on recidivism. Um, and we found that after controlling for other known predictors of recidivism, higher levels of peer support were not associated with lower levels of recidivism, either for emotional or, or instrumental support. With that said, though, um, I have been pleased to witness a number of programs or even more informal interventions that work to harness the power of peer support in really, I would argue, influential ways. And so this is kind of in some ways back to this quantitative versus qualitative differences, too. Um, one more formal example that I've, I've worked with is a federal reentry court program in Philadelphia um, that I've been evaluating since 2008. And in many ways, this court follows a traditional specialty or problem-solving court format in which participants report successes and obstacles to a judge in front of other participants. Um, but over the years, this program has really sought to take advantage of the powerful influence of peer support among their participants in several ways. One example is they've actually given participants several weeks extra credit 
towards program completion if a participant helps another get a job. So they tell the court, uh, my current job is hiring, I'll put in a good word for this guy. And if that other participant then keeps the job, um, the other person gets a few weeks toward their program completion. So this is really trying to like build in instrumental peer support um, in some ways. Um, and I also interviewed uh, some of their participants years ago as part of a process evaluation, and participants consistently reported that it was really moving to hear from others in court um, about their experiences. So they know that they're not alone in facing certain challenges, um, but they, they can also listen to others and be inspired when they're being successful. So just the process of a specialty court, problem-solving court in which other participants are there to listen to one another. Um, that provides a, a peer support model as well. Um, I also spent several years recently evaluating another specialty court program in Philadelphia that was called the Mentor Program. Um, it stood for Mentors Empowering Now to Overcome Recidivism. Um, and this paired participants with community mentors. Um, and so in addition to all of the kind of wraparound case management services, this was the only known adult mentoring court with mentoring as kind of the main program um, component. And this was moderately associated with reductions in both recidivism as well as probation revocation. So uh, this is another kind of peer support influence. Uh, lastly, then at a more organic or grassroots level, I've had the privilege to learn from a few different groups of men who are serving life sentences in Pennsylvania and have started on their own various positive peer intervention or almost like mentoring type programs with other men incarcerated. Um, two of these organizations I've worked with, one is called the Public Safety Initiative, another is called Real Street Talk. Um, many of the guys involved in this might be, you know, referred to as old heads, but they have this great level of credibility with younger people incarcerated and can really work with them as they're getting ready to, to be released. Um, and the Department of Corrections recognizes this. They've supported their programming um, in which these organizations uh, talk through what they term the culture of street crime and get the younger guys to see that there's a different way to think about their lives and their role in crime. Um, and so this, real, this work really requires a very intimate level of peer support to do this positive peer intervention. And having sat in on these sessions, they are incredibly powerful, life-altering interventions that anecdotally, at least, I can say really make a, make a huge difference in reentry experiences. Um, and so lots of ways that, that, uh, that peer support can matter, um, even if this is, I think, a level of, of research that we could certainly grow, still grow in and in, in evaluating its effects. Um, then back to kind of calling conceptualizing this as a as a micro level versus a macro level. If we're thinking about what we know about on the macro level of social support for for people returning um, home. In many ways, our society does the opposite of providing social support when people come home, right? Um, we exclude, we stigmatize, we label, we other, we restrict people in so many ways when they come home from, from prison and jail. So if we think about all of the collateral consequences and invisible punishments that exist, uh, depending on someone's conviction type and the jurisdiction they live in, people can be banned from holding certain types of employment. They can be banned from living in public housing or receiving food stamps, banned from getting student loans. They can have their parental rights revoked. They can be restricted from holding a public office or, or sitting on a jury. And so all of these things that we know are ties to or are sources of social support, employment, family, residence, school, uh, we cut people off from those things at a societal or, or macro level in so many ways. Um, and so this really brings me to thinking about where I think the abolition movement asks us a really critical question. Um, and that is, is our system designed for people to fail or is it designed for them to be successful? 
what would a system look like that was designed for people to have the social support at a macro level in order for them to be successful? Because I think it would certainly not look like what, what we're doing now, right? And so the abolition movement is really all about us getting to envision a different way of doing things. Our imaginations have been so under arrest by mass incarceration and seeing retribution as the response to interpersonal harms um, that we've really struggled to even remember that the U.S. handles crime, the way the U.S. handles crime via mass incarceration is historically and geographically unprecedented, right? So we could do things differently and we're choosing not to. And so if we think social support at a macro level matters, in so many ways, everything we do right now is the exact opposite of what we should be doing. I agree. I agree, wholeheartedly agree. So it seems like, and I know this is a topic for later on, um, um, in the podcast but it seems like we need to start uh, it seems like maybe in communities and individually or at that micro level we are establishing some of this social support and we're being able uh, we're able to kind of provide that in a sense but we need to take it to a more higher level uh, to really make an impact and really to make some change Yes, I think absolutely, right? So on, we can have um, a family be willing to give you a place to live as long as they don't live in public housing though, right? Because if now you have a grandma who's willing to take you in when you come out of, of jail, but she lives in public housing, if you stay with her and you have a federal drug conviction, you could be putting her at risk of eviction, right? Um, so it's all of these intersections between individual level support and macro level support, right? You could get trained to become a barber while you're incarcerated, but then you get out and are legally banned from getting a barber's license. Um, so there's all of these um, macro level obstacles or challenges that we choose to put on people, right? Um, so in some ways, there's big picture questions about can family support, or let me rephrase, is it fair to expect families to provide enough support to overcome all of these collateral consequences and invisible punishments and macro level obstacles to successful reintegration. I mean, it's a very valid question. Um, do I have the answer and will I speak on that? Probably not, because I'm not sure. Um, would that be nice? Yes, but I know that like it's hard for families. It's just, it's just as hard as for the individual as it is for the family sometimes. And sometimes, depending on the circumstances, even harder for the families. Um, and I guess like since we brought up families, it's only right if we talk about what, what does the family role generally look like or how is the family utilized during the reentry process? Yeah, great question. I think that there's... Um a lot of gender differences that are important here. So we know that socially, if we're speaking just in generalizations, women are often the caretakers in families. So when men get locked up, they have romantic partners, wives, baby mamas, their own mothers, sisters, aunties, whatever, who are socialized to care for them during their time incarcerated and help them post-release. But when women get locked up, that often means one of the family caretakers is now gone. And so there's much less social support for when women are incarcerated because of all of these larger uh, socialized gender roles that we already have. Um, I also think of here uh, a book from a number of years ago now that I think is still extremely relevant um, by Doug Brahman called Doing Time on the Outside. And he did this ethnography of urban, predominantly Black families with male family members incarcerated and found the really damaging effects of mass incarceration on families of color in particular. Um, many women with either partners or baby daddies who were locked up reported feeling like incarceration gave men an easy way out on their family responsibilities. They didn't need to financially provide for their families or provide childcare because they weren't home to be able to do so. 
Um, and so on one hand, while I certainly want to recognize and acknowledge all of the experiences of incarcerated um, men who work diligently under incredible obstacles to provide as much as they can and stay involved in their families' lives, I think we also need to honor the perceptions of women on the outside who report that incarceration can give men a pass on participating in, in family life or leading family life because they're locked up. So um, I think it's hard to speak on what is the typical role for a family, but gender absolutely plays a, a big role in, in how that plays out. When somebody is released, families can, the most immediate need often is housing. So providing housing or helping somebody find their own housing. Um, other forms of financial support, helping find employment can be really key. We know you know, regardless of your involvement in the justice system or not, the way people find jobs is through their social networks. And so knowing um, where a place is hiring or if they are felon friendly, um, families can, can play, a, especially extended family members can play a real role in that. There's also a challenge of like family reunification um, and that that can be very difficult. Sometimes Family members continue to uh, feel a sense of animosity or abandonment or frustration as a result of somebody's prior criminal activity or them being away for a long time. Um, and so that that can be a really isolating experience for people coming home, especially if now they're trying to stay away from former criminal peers who might still be involved in crime. Um, that really kind of leaves a, an open space for people to, to need to build new connections. Um, Family members, of course, then can also be providing emotional support, as we talked about before. Um, does the does the reentrant perceive family to be somebody who understands their problems, who is there to um, offer to have a listening ear? All of those types of of emotional needs as well. Yes, yeah, that was that was a great like summary of all of that too. And I guess like I'm wondering, um, I, there's always like a flip side to this as well of just the individuals who don't have family or, you know, or can't necessarily return to their family, maybe because of the crime that they committed or because like you said, the animosity um, that may still exist or the perception of harm that may, um, that they, yeah, their perception of harm. And I'm wondering, how how do these individuals find support or like you know how does this work out for them it's an astronomically more difficult process without family support right um that it can be a very isolating experience we have some anecdotal examples of people then overly relying on or being more likely to return to criminal peer groups uh, if they don't have uh, family support. And again, gender really plays a role here. Um, in many circumstances for women, the person that was their criminal peer was a romantic partner, right? Um, this is kind of one of those interesting generalizations in the um, in the uh, forgetting the name in the uh, criminological theories on life course criminology, right? That the marriage and romantic partnership uh, for men finding a wife reduces their likelihood of crime, but for women, it's oftentimes the opposite, right? That the person who gets them in trouble is the uh, male romantic partner, right? And all of the heteronormativity tied up in that uh, literature of life course criminology aside, I think that that really speaks to the the gendered experiences of reentry, right? That when when women come home, if the person who was leading them into or supporting them in a life of crime was a, a male romantic partner. This is a major part of their family that they might be cut off from. Um, we also need to address the gender differences in women being more likely to have been and continue to be the primary caretakers for children. That absolutely changes the reentry experience. So we said before about the need for family reunification, reunifying with children who might be have been staying with a loved one versus or in the foster care system or some other circumstance um, adds a whole nother challenge uh, to the to the reentry process, particularly for women. Yeah, and I women are definitely an 
an interesting population, especially when you're thinking about pathways into crime. And because that is a common one of just uh, a, a lover or a romantic partner getting them involved and uh, then becoming incarcerated. And then all the other like challenges that come with it, like you're talking about with parenting and all these different things. So it's definitely a struggle. Um, and, you know, I know I, I'm hoping, you know, as a system, we can find more ways to better not just support the overall incarcerated population and formerly incarcerated, but specifically finding support for women in those situations, because I know it can be a lot more. I, well, I don't know, but I have heard and I have seen that it can be a very challenging process. Um, and I think this just moves us in our conversation of because we've talked about peer support. We've talked about family support. And I mean, we've talked about more general support. Um, but I think this moves us in our conversation of why are we even talking about this? Like, why is social support so important um, and what can it do for us on a I guess on a macro level of, you know, for our communities, for our families, uh, us as neighbors, and just as a, a society as a whole. Yeah, this is, you know, leads me down my restorative justice, hippie dippy kumbaya type answer here. But if we, if we think about it, like, to envision what type of society we want to live in. Do we want to live in a society in which people are excluded and stigmatized and othered? Or do we want to live in a society when people are re-embraced, right? Like drawing from the restorative justice literature and John Braithwaite's work on reintegrative shaming. Like the reintegrative piece is key there, right? When somebody has harmed another person, we can admonish them. We can we can say that what you did was wrong, but we don't see that as who you are. And we want you to continue to be part of our group. And the way that we show that is by reaccepting you back into the group, right? Um, and yet the the all of the policies we talked about earlier with collateral consequences and invisible punishments show that we're doing the exact opposite of that in so many ways, right? Um, and in many ways, like a lot of this starts at the point of incarceration, right? That in order for people to pro be provided support post-release, they need to be supported while they're incarcerated as well, right? They need to be able to maintain ties um, to the outside. Yes, very true. And he, while you were talking about that, it made me like think of something because like you're talking about like envisioning this world where we are accepting and we are, um, yeah, we're accepting of this group. And it just makes me think about like the world we live in right now. We are, we're moving to where we're accepting people who are LGBTQ. We are accepting people with, you know, disabilities. Um, you know, we're accepting all these different um, groups that are generally stigmatized, but somehow this particular group of incarcerated individuals, formerly incarcerated individuals are still being left out. And a part of me is always in the back of my mind. And granted, I know I can come up with probably a thousand reasons for it, but I'm always like, why? Like, why is this group so different from these other groups that also have been marginalized or also have been stigmatized? But then again, we're embracing these other groups. And I mean, like, that's great. I'm all for that too. But it's like, why can't we do the same here? And I know that that's like a hard question to answer. And I'm not asking you to answer that at all, but it's just like a thought that's in my mind. And it's it's always running through my mind. Um, not always, but, you know, when I'm having these conversations of what is so different about this group or what is so hard for, not even what is so different, but what is so hard for us to embrace about this particular group of people? Yeah, I mean, your comment immediately makes me think of Michelle Alexander's The New Jim Crow, right? She puts it so succinctly to be able to say that the only group in the U.S. that it continues to be socially acceptable to discriminate against and that we can legally discriminate against is people who are justice system involved. Um, and and that's a really tough one. So we can't we can't have these conversations without talking about the impacts of race, right? And there's a ton of psychological literature that Vinkivia is probably more in your wheelhouse than mine with a sociologist background. Um, but that is on when you know asking uh, study participants to close their eyes and envision what a criminal looks like. People say they envision a black and brown person, right, or a black or brown person. Um, and so that that 
part of the way I think that people are so comfortable with othering, with continuing to discriminate against this group is because white people in particular have a sense of privilege and supremacy that we can continue to say these are black and brown people who are committing crime right um i need to acknowledge in that discussion also kind of the opposite or not opposite but connected arguments that have been made by James Foreman in his book, Locking Up Our Own, that points to the role um, that Black people played in creating mass incarceration and legalized discrimination uh, for people involved in the justice system as well. So there's lots of really complex arguments there, but in terms of why we continue to be okay with discriminating against and othering this group, race is, I think, a, a, a huge part. The second part, though, is about our over-reliance, our, I would dare to say, obsession with the idea of retribution. Our sense of justice being done is if somebody harms somebody else, we want that person to experience harm themselves. This is just how we set things right in the world. And so where do we draw the line of when those harms stop? is important, right? It's not just that we want somebody to serve a prison sentence, but we continue to want them to experience punishment after their release. Um, and so this over-reliance on retribution as, as the predominant goal of corrections um, for many of us has been so deeply ingrained. And um, I think of Angela Davis's work in her, you know, integral book, Are Prisons Obsolete, in which she points to how we take prison for granted in these ways, right? Like on, she talks about how on one hand, prison is everywhere. And at the same time, it's nowhere that we don't know what happens behind the walls because we're othering people. But at the same time, we take prison as the predominant response to crime and interpersonal harm takes place of course the offender needs to go to prison. Like that's not the only way it needs to be, but this has become in our country in recent decades, just what we take for granted as, as the response. Um, and so I think all of those are reasons why we have this continued, continued discrimination against people, justice system involved. And it's so funny to um, see like, you hear about these other countries like Norway who have these different approaches to, you know, corrections to punishment and to crime. And you look at like just their quality of life there and uh, of just either, even just the quality of life for the general population, as well as the quality of life of the people who are being released from, you know, incarceration there. And it's so much better. And I'm just like, uh, wh why can't we do that? Like, why like why can't we do that and like I said I know these are hard questions and I'm not asking you to answer but it's just these are there are always thoughts running through my head of just like why is it so hard for us to like you said to switch over and maybe change how we are doing things of like okay well maybe retribution isn't working for us very clearly it's not helping us um maybe we need to pick something else rehabilitation let's try that or you know looking at this through a different lens of how we can better support and not just the individuals, but our communities and our society. So um, those are, yeah, those are always just thoughts that are like running through my head when I have these conversations. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And those are really, those are really hard questions about like why we can't do it like every place else in the world does, right? Mass incarceration is historically and geographically unprecedented. Mm -hmm. um, nowhere in the history of humankind have people put their own citizens in cages like the United States has in recent decades. It's just historically unprecedented. Um, and I think, again, a lot of that is tied up with issues of race. I think a lot of it is also tied up with pop culture and the uh, media and the politicization of crime. Um, if I'm a politician, and there's public opinion is showing that people are really concerned about the crime problem, I might know that addressing the root causes, the social causes of crime is going to create public safety better in the long run. But for that to be shown, I'm going to be out of office by the time we see those benefits, right? Like if I'm going to invest in, in better schools and access to quality education and access to jobs and healthcare and all of these other things that we know are the social root causes of crime, 
that's going to take a decade or more to start turning around, right? Um, and so now in my political cycle of only two years, what am I going to do to address public opinion? Sentences are longer, mandatory minimums, right? Everybody gets a life sentence, right? This is, this is, this, this, the political part of this is really complicated. And it's, I don't think it's just that, you know, the public opinion influences politics. And I don't just think that it's politics influence public opinion. There's a two way street between those. Yes. And I think, um, you know, going off of that, I think it's only right to kind of talk about what can we do? Like, what can families do to show this social support? What can individuals do? What can communities do? Um, so where we can get to this place where we can just start working out a, a plan for us to be able to do this in the next 10 to 15 years, hopefully. Um, so, yeah, I get that's my question is what can we do? Yeah, I think that this starts with and I started to mention a little bit before about in order to provide support post-release, social ties need to be maintained while somebody is locked up, right? Um, and yet there are so many policy level obstacles to this. The distance between somebody's home and prison, transportation and lodging expenses, difficult visiting hours that overlap with people's work schedules, unwelcoming environments for children. As the mom of a six-year-old and a two-year-old, the thought of taking those children without iPads or devices or toys into an institution, like I just can't even fathom for hours having them sit with nothing. Um, exploitatively priced prison phone calls. Uh, so many states now have these ridiculous mail policies that everything gets scanned and the copy of it sent to the person incarcerated as opposed to the original piece of mail. Um, so first and foremost, like doing things that do not, that improve the likelihood that social ties can be maintained during incarceration instead of reducing the likelihood that they can be maintained. Um, I think that the use of video conferencing 10 years ago was thought of as like, oh, this is going to be a great way to improve uh, connections being maintained. But unfortunately, a number of jurisdictions are now trying to use and using video conferencing to sub to not to supplement in-person visits, but to replace in-person visits, which is just outrageous. Um, some jurisdictions have experimented with what have been called kinship support payments. So family members actually get a financial incentive to provide support for. Um, it's been framed as an incentive. I would argue perhaps a better term would be compensation um, to providing support to loved ones coming home. Um, I also think probation and parole agencies and community-based organizations are already doing this, uh, but probation and parole could be doing more to fund and support family conferencing or family therapy, family reunification services is a really um, key part here. So I think all of those are, are relatively straightforward policy suggestions. Here's what might be perceived as the most radical suggestion, but in many ways is the most simple or basic idea. Let's stop locking people up or stop locking up so many people. We can stop the reentry problem if we don't lock people up. Um, so this is this is back to the abolitionist this framework as well. Yeah, that I mean that makes sense to me of. Uh, at least use incarceration as an alternative method um, and use some of the other alternatives out there. Because in reality, a lot of people, when you think about the crime they committed or the circumstances in which they committed it, some of them need assistance in other areas. And that probably would be more beneficial than them going to prison or going to jail or some other type of incarcerated facility or correctional facility um and that may be more beneficial in stopping you know them from engaging further engaging in criminal activity if we address kind of those root issues so i do agree stop arresting people well, not arresting people but stop sending people to prison at least so many people um it's insane like you said the amount of people that flow in and out of the system the amount of people that we have incarcerated currently in the united states like throughout all these facilities that we have it's 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 insane and 
I'm just like, oh, wow, oh, wow. Every time I see the number, I'm just like, oh, wow. I didn't even know. How do you have that many people behind bars? <laughs> like, that's a lot of people. But I really do appreciate, you know, the conversation and like the passion that you have for this topic um, and coming on and like talking on the show and giving us this insight on family support, social support in general, peer support, um, how this impacts us and like what we can do to kind of help assist in, you know, in, in the ways that we can. I know there are much bigger way. There's bigger things that we have to hit in order to um, get to where we need to be. Um, and, I, I, you know, I pray one day we'll get there, like um, one day we will. But I do appreciate your insight. And I want to open the floor up to you to ask you, um, given this conversation, what is one thing you would want the audience to remember um, to, al- to always keep in their back pocket when you're thinking about social support and um, reentry and things like that? Love that question. Um, And I guess my answer would be that I would encourage people to think about, envision, what is the world that you want to live in? And is that world one in which we use prison harming other people as the primary response to how we address interpersonal harms? Or is it something else? Is it prevention? Is it a restorative model? And how can you start taking steps in your own life to be building towards that world that you would rather live in? I love that because that is such a, a, a critical thinking question of like, it gets those conversations started um, and it gets people thinking about where we are currently and like you said, where they would like to be. So I really do like that question. and. Um, you know, I thank you for coming on. Um, and yeah, so I thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. This has been a pleasure chatting with you. Yes, of course. I love that. And as always, you guys, if you are interested in learning more about Dr. Taylor and the work that she does, I will put her Twitter information in the bottom of the uh, description box. Um, and any other information that you guys will need will be in the description box as well. And don't forget to push the subscribe button for More Life the Reentry Podcast and follow us on Instagram at More Life the Reentry Podcast. Thank you guys for tuning in. 